the latest on the world game. This is 442 Insider, brought to you by the Hyundai A-League. Be part of the action this season. Hello and welcome to this week's 442 Insider Podcast. I'm publisher Andy Jackson. Joining me as always is editor Trevor Trahan. Hello. And we're going to be joined by some very special guests in the second half of the podcast. Uh, Chelsea legend Charlie Cook and Jason Lancer, both from uh, Curva Coaching. Uh, Charlie now spending his time in the US, as he has done for a number of years now. Jason runs uh, the Curva operation in Australia, so they both will be popping in uh, for the second half. But uh, until then, let's crack on. Trev, local. Uh, A-League, yep. week 16, um, saw it kick off with uh, Wellington Phoenix. Sly little buggers. Always lose. Moved into, three, into third place. Where did that happen? <laughs> always lose away. Jets always win at home, hey? <clears throat> then, we, then we realised it was the A-League. Another away win. Yeah, we, we now live in a world where Wellington and Perth can win away from home. Which... Throws our multi-bets all over yeah, the shop. Yeah, exactly. Matty yeah. Muscat with his first goal um, was enough to get Phoenix over the line and, and as I just said, saw them move up uh, into third place. I mean, that's, that's incredible. That's Two points human. behind Brisbane Raw. I mean, we're saying uh, you know, early in the season they didn't have a squad together and some of the early results weren't great. No way we could see them making the finals. Now they're sniffing around a top two spot. Um, it is a superhuman effort from everyone at Wellington. Yeah, uh, Central Coast Mariners three-two. Uh, the Mariners juggernaut shows no sign of uh, of dropping. They're uh, now eleven points clear. Yeah, um, they, won't, they won't be caught, will they, for for the Premiership? So yeah, and someone criticised us, I think, on the in the thread for last week's pod, saying that how on earth could we say that they were dominating the league? I'd say eleven point gap in a ten-team tournament with nine games to go. Jesus He's pretty had, dominant. Jesus had his haters as well, Andy. Yeah. Can't can be loved by everyone. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, you know, it's a fascinating game, and to call it a thriller was was about right, actually. Um, Adelaide still look, you know, greatly improved for me, but the, the crucial point was when they went 2-1 up, those two quick goals, they had a batch of chances after to make it 3-1, and that they didn't score then, you know, was the problem, because if they could have gone into half-time 3-1 up, then, that's, you know, that's a different... Different kettle of fish for um, the Central Coast Mariners to come back from, but they looked all at sea. The Mariners, you know, after they letting those two goals and, and what you, did y- there. you know, yeah, huh? Mariners the, all at sea. Yeah, <laughs> no, not intentional at all. Um, and then that's when they needed to score. But one thing I like about Adelaide, when, when we were doing our season preview, was saying the reason Adelaide will be there or thereabouts is because they've got they'll have you know Gita and Van Dyke up front and Vidasic in behind. Now, whenever I saw them previously. They didn't seem to be. They didn't seem to be doing that. They've had one of them on the bench, and Vinicius is injured for a little bit. But when Gita did play, seemed to be playing on the wing. So, um, you know, we've Cosmina's come back in and done a rather obvious thing and played those two as strikers with you know Vinicius in behind, and it's working. So, would you say that that's a case of you know Cosmina finding the system to suit the players rather than trying so. to get the players to suit a, a predetermined sort of 4-3-3 system that Coolan was probably trying to do yeah if you if you've got two players who are ideal to fr- to play up front together with you know a creative player in behind then play that but Coolan obviously wanted this more sort of dutch style of the the three up front but kind of not the three up front the one up front and the two behind and and GA GTA wasn't as suited to that so yeah they, they look a lot better Adelaide. I, I I wouldn't be you know 
it's not great to to lose a game when you've been winning. It's not great to lose a game at any point, but I, I still think that was quite encouraging for Adelaide. Okay. Um, Melbourne Heart, probably the game of the week. I uh, really enjoyed this game. Enjoyed watching it. Um, 1-1, one, one, Brisbane Raw. Um, quality game, two teams uh, going at it. Good quality football. Pace of the game was, was fantastic. Oh, I thought Fozzie's head was going to explode on Twitter. He was loving it. Was he? So, yeah, <laughs> minute by minute updates. Yeah, it was good. And it's the kind of game that I think every fan was, was looking forward to seeing. Um, and in terms of Brisbane's goal scorer, it was always going to be, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, there was a bit of obvious controversy going into this game when uh, Melbourne Hart weren't too happy that um, Barisha was available to play because, uh, you know, obviously he'd been given a one-game ban but had up to seven days to appeal it. Um, so, obviously, by delaying their decision as to whether to appeal, um, that meant that he was eligible to play. Uh, and they've since come out and not decided to appeal it. <laughs> so he's now missing the next game. The, the, um, but I think that's fair enough. I mean, Suarez was playing throughout yeah. until the, the, the decision was, you know, until they decided whether they were going to appeal or not. So I think that there's precedent there. Um, it's obviously not ideal, but there it was you go. It was interesting hearing from Scott Munn slash Brendan Swab, whichever one it was, talking, <laughs> talking before the game. Um, and he, you know understandably wasn't happy about you know what had happened but they are like you say they're the current rules are globally the current rules yeah. aren't they so I mean the question would be in the, if the roles were reversed and it was a Melbourne Heart player would Melbourne Heart do the same yeah exactly yeah. Um, but yeah it was in that snatched the uh, got the uh, equal and first missed a penalty as well really, really missed a penalty oh yeah it was, <laughs> if you're going to uh, miss one I suppose well over yeah if you're going to miss it don't leave anything out there as Crystal Palace demonstrated yeah Okay, uh, Germano obviously opened the scoring. Uh, I think he's, you know, he has probably made a big difference coming back because mm. uh, he's given them a bit of uh, that sort of driving force in the midfield that they were missing with Fred. So I think he's alleviating a little bit of that. And they've moved to sign Paul Reed, although he wasn't playing um, at the weekend. He was watching from the stands. So, uh, but I thought it was encouraging for Hart. I thought they'd, after their little wobble, I thought that they needed that game to uh, to sort of show that they were still in in with a fight. Yep. Uh, so they're in fourth now uh, with 26 points. Um, Perth Glory hammered Melbourne victory. Poor performance from Melbourne. Uh, another red card. Um, shipping four goals. As I put on Twitter, you know we've had uh, we've had all, we've had um, people coming out of retirement to come back uh, with Paul Scholes. You know, maybe it's time for uh, for Muskie to put the boots back on and go and sort out their defence from the pitch. Mate, I mean. I- you know, as I was watching this, I was beginning to say, I wonder what Magilton thinks about the job that he's taken on. I mean, he's probably sold a story about the type of players that they've got there. But they look, you know, they looked a long way off making finals football this season. Well, it's, I know. mean, it's a tough one for him because, you know, obviously there's so little room for movement in the A-League. It's not mm. like you know, where you could ship six players out and bring six players in in a, in a month. No. He's also not got the job next season. Mm. So how much are the board going to allow him to do... In the next few weeks, um, you know, when they're not sure, you know, they're both by their own admission on a mutual sort of trial basis. Yeah. Uh, so it's a real sort of tough situation to be in. I mean, effectively, he's got sort of nine games, really, you know, um, so 10 games as a sort of, you know, trial for the major job. And so I guess how much leeway will they give him with squad on that? They've obviously moved to bring in Mark Milligan uh, on a short term deal, which I think was a good signing, good experience. Yeah. Um, he knows the A League. The, the bigger thing about that story was the the Ricardinho, you know, being off the off the list. 
off the you know the visa spot, which yeah. I, I presume that if Magilton's got some contacts, that he, he's going to use that you know to to bring someone in. But yeah, I mean, what would be even more important tomorrow? I mean, if if you're in desperate need of results, if you're hosting your main rivals, if Sydney are Melbourne's main rivals over Adelaide, um, then they need to get a result there. Yeah, we're talking of critical results. Sydney FC's uh, late winner against Gold Coast um, uh, went 1-0 down, as is their standard uh, home performance this year, Yep, uh, and managed to get their first win at home since coming from behind to beat Gold Coast earlier in the season, back in November. Uh, it's a depressing Br- stat, isn't it? For Bruno Casarini with a late uh, headed goal, um, which was critical for them. I mean, that's put them to, you know, right back in the mixer in the, in the finals with set to... It's difficult to imagine what it would have done had they not got that winner. Um, but you know, a win tomorrow against Melbourne, and they'll they'll be right back in amongst it. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's you get a feeling it's sort of papering over the cracks a little bit. I, I think so, yeah. And um, you know, an interesting stat on on Bruno Casarin. Someone someone emailed to me that he's the most prolific Sydney FC striker ever. Really? In terms of, in appear- terms of what? appearances, goals, the goals, appearances. Go- goals, appearances, yeah. And when you, you actually looked at the list and who else is up there, you know, York, you know, Bridge, Brosk, Sydney FC have never really had a super prolific striker of they. They've no. never really had an Archie Thompson, a Shane Smeltz, a Van Dyke, you know, who, who scores on a regular basis. Um, and to find out that Bruno Casarin's your, your most productive, so and, and I had this stat before this goal, so he's probably gone even further ahead now. Um, but yes, so. I'd, you still can't be too encouraged, even though it's a victory. And I still feel a little bit for Gold Coast because it was going to be an uphill battle for them. But they've they just keep getting edged out, don't they? You know, each week, regardless if it's home and home or away. Yeah, they're not getting and, spanked. They're, no, they're, they're certainly not. not whipping boys of the league. I don't, there, there isn't a whipping boy in the league. You know. No, exactly. I mean, the, the, they've let in 25 goals, and you know that's less than Newcastle and Adelaide and Victory and Sydney. You know, so the. You know, they're not all at sea. They just can't quite seem to get it together. Yeah, I mean, it's the scoring of the goals that's the issue for them. They scored 19 in 17 games. Yeah. Uh, and not putting games away when they're 1-0 up. Mm. Um, so the ladder looks like this. After uh, some teams have played... The bottom four teams have played 17 games. Top six have played 18. Well, it's Mariners, top, 40 points. Brisbane, second on 29 points. Wellington Phoenix, 27 points. Melbourne Heart, 26 points. Glory 25, Sydney 23, Melbourne 19, Adelaide 19, Newcastle 18, and the Gold Coast on 14. There's a game tonight out in Bathurst um, in the community round. Adelaide United, I won't say host because nobody's hosting this. Uh, Bathurst are hosting this. But Adelaide face off against Newcastle Jets. Um, Trev. Yes. This is uh, you know. You, we're reaching that point in the season, really, where hopefully we should start seeing some more entertaining games, simply because this is one of those games where a draw's not good to anyone, really. No, no, the, these two, I mean, you know, the, the Jets back there on 18 points, or Sydney's up on 23 in the finals places, um, are in a situation where if, if they're going to make a run to the finals, they're going to have to do it now, um, and the sort of same applies to Adelaide, but, I, you know, they, they may not want to draw, but I reckon that's what it'll be. Yeah. Okay, tomorrow, as you, we touched on earlier, uh, Australia Day clash, um, Melbourne victory versus Sydney FC at Amy Park, um, four o'clock kickoff. Yep. Blockbuster. Yeah, really excited. Public holiday. Perfect. Great stadium, best stadium in the league. Four p.m. Be best well, pitch in the league. Be well on your way by then. 
two um, you know two teams that are desperate for a win. You know, different reasons. Sydney need a win to try and get back in amongst it. Jim McGilton, desperate for a win. First win as coach. They need to put the glory nightmare behind them. Yeah. Um, odds on a red card in this one. <laughs> I know one man will be back in that bet. <laughs> back in that bet. Anyway, it, it's almost more intriguing than if they were the top two this game. That, that sixth and seventh. This There's extra, going to be more desperation yeah, in it, I think. Yeah, extra level you know, of desperation. It, it's not like, oh, we want to win, but if we don't, we're still comfortably in the finals. You know, this is... Season on the line stuff, really. Yeah. And if vic- victory lose, I mean, that that genuinely spells disaster. Because even if they win, they're not going to overtake, uh, you know, Sydney. So if, if they lose, there'll be serious questions asked. Mm. OK, uh, Gold Coast uh, hosts Central Coast, Battle of the Coasts, on Friday at Skill Park. Um, coast with the most. Coast with the most. <laughs> Can you see anyone stopping the Mariners at the moment? You know, I'm loath to sort of feel that the Gold Coast are going to lose every weekend because, like I was saying earlier, I, don't, I genuinely don't think they're that bad. Um, and, I mean, uh, I can see perhaps a, a typical Mariners port. I, I get what that person was saying when we were saying about the Mariners. They're not spanking dom- teams. No, no, not, I, I, I not, get that. They're not hammering teams like, you know, 6-7-1. and seven, one, No. Like but Brisbane were at their height, you know. Yeah, but they have won 12-18. and 18, And <laughs> yeah. they haven't lost. And they were 11 points clear. <laughs> 11 points clear, so you, you can't... And keep argue. finding a way to win. Yeah. You know, and even when they're not necessarily playing well, even when yeah. they go behind, they, they you know, they, they're just... They've just got that little bit extra yeah. to, you know, that, that mentality that they're not going to be beaten. Yeah. I'm going to go for a draw. Yeah? Just say I'm going to mix right. it up here, yeah, why not? Okay, yeah. Uh, Brisbane Royal host Newcastle. Um, on paper, you'd probably say this would be a... A home banker. Should be another good game, like the Hart one, though, really. An interesting t- test for the Jets, whose season's fading away. But, yeah, you'd, you'd think Brisbane would have a little bit too much. I don't think they'll spank them, but I, I think they'll win them. Yeah, there's a chance here as well. You know, like If Newcastle can win tonight and win on the weekend, they're right back in it. Yeah. You know, it's a case mm. of, right, we've got two massive games here. Um, you know, and so just there's been a bit of talk. You know, I think it was Graham Arnold that was talking about, and I, and I got another email from someone from Sydney SC who's talking about the workload. The fact that Sydney have played nine games in 42 days or what? something like that, and Graham Arnold was complaining about the workload. And I just think, you know, it's a 27 game league play. <laughs> you know, and everybody, you know. Ev- Everybody given the opportunity would be on the first plane to Europe to go and play in the Premier League or the Championship or La Liga. Or the... mm-hmm. Playing two and three games a week is standard for well, nine months. Millie Edniak, how many games is he going to play this season? You know, he got, I mean, they knocked out the cup, but he's playing in that. In, what's it, 40, 40 odd games in, in the Championship? Yeah, it's really not that much. And hopefully during a six month pre season as well, you would have got your players' fitness up to a level that could get them yeah. through a short you season. Know, for so I can't long, buy the first all. few seasons, all we're hearing was there's not enough football, we need more football. Mm. And now there is. We're moaning that it's too much. You know, it's like, I just think, guys, get used to it. If you really want to go and uh, test yourself with the best, you've got to play 50, 60 games a year. And, yeah, exactly. And, and still, yeah, okay, the travelling is a factor, but you still got to travel when you go to Europe. If you're mm. in Europe and being successful, so. Um, yeah, get over it, lads. Um, Wellington host Melbourne Heart, uh, Westpac Stadium, and for all Wellington's success, there's been a there's been a bit of uh, you know talk about the fact that they, they seem to have lost that connection with the public. They're not getting the crowds that they were. Um, they seem to get bigger crowds when they move away and and sort of travel 
ran like sort of New Zealand Globetrotter style. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll see the crowd return. Uh, Hart, obviously a good side to watch. Wellington now back up in, you know, up into third and, and challenging. They've got know. a good story to sell, haven't they? You know, in, yeah. in terms of where they are and, and how they've managed to get there. Um, this is another tough one to, to call on how strong Wellington are at home and they, you know, they are above height in the league. Um, but I, th- I think I might back another draw. I mean, th- these are never easy to get right, these results, as anyone who's ever listened to this podcast will tell you. <laughs> but th- this week, you know, is another really tough week to call. We, we didn't get your prediction for Melbourne-Sydney. A draw. <laughs> a draw? I think it will be a draw, yeah. That's the one I'm so most confident about. So you're backing all draws? Yeah, but the Melbourne one I'm most confident about being a draw. Okay, just making a note of that. Uh, Adelaide hosts Perth Glory. I feel like there's no pressure on these predictions because they've been so bad for 133-odd shows now. Adelaide, Perth Glory. Perth, you know, again, went started well, went on a little dip, now coming back with a bit of form. Uh, in fifth, 25 points, you know, and they'll look at, the teams above them, like Melbourne, Hart, Wellington, and think that potentially, you know, third or fourth place is there yeah. for taking. And especially now if they're starting to win away from home as well, and um, players seem to be, you know, played in the better positions. So interesting comments coming out of Perth, though, from, um, you know, Fergie and Jacob Burns saying, oh, yeah, we've not done anything different. We've just been getting the rub of the green more. Um, I think fans want to hear that you've done some sort of incredible tactical change and everything's going to be okay. But uh, you can see where they're coming from because they, they certainly weren't far off at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Um, I mean, Adelaide hadn't lost under Cosy before. They've been just edged out away to the best team in the league and I think they'll return to winning ways at home to Perth. Okay. I think the thing with Perth that, that is different to some of the other sides is they have got the ability to score three and four goals. Yeah. You know, if Smeltz is firing and he's got supply coming from the likes of Travis Dodd and Stajowski seems to Miller. be coming into a bit of form. You know, Liam Miller, Billy Mehmet. I think, you know, particularly when we're getting nearer to, you know, and we get into sort of sudden death football, mm. you know, and, and finals, that they have got that ability to score goals, which, which will be critical. Um, all right, and then uh, Melbourne Victory uh, host Gold Coast United in, the, in their community round, uh, which will be in Launceston, Launceston in, uh, in Tasmania. So interesting right. test to, uh, to see how that goes. Um, how do you think that both sides really travelling, but obviously you'd probably say it's a bit of an advantage for Melbourne. It's not quite as far for them. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's difficult to call before you see how Melbourne line up at the Sydney game. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's the kind of game that Gold Coast will somehow lose Unluckily, so <laughs> I'm going to go, you know, buy a single goal victory. Okay. All right, that is it for part one. We'll be back in part two just to look at some of the news headlines on our website, au.442.com, before we'll be joining the second half by our special guest. So stay with us. This month's 442 magazine is out now and features an exclusive interview with Barcelona's Cesc Fabregas on why he left Arsenal. Plus, we ask if the NSL was better than the A-League. We uncover what happened to the North Queensland Fury players after the club folded. Go behind the scenes at EPL New Boys QPR and chat with David Silver, Paul Scholes, Juan Mata, Marco Rojas, Musti Amini, Mazumo Madoka, and Sasha Ognanovsky. The latest on the world game. This is 442 Insider. Hello, welcome back to this week's 442 Insider podcast. We are going to dive in to the second part of the podcast this week. So That'll be cool if we did. So let's talk about uh, Harry Kuehl, marquee man for uh, Melbourne Victory. And a couple of instances in the game against Glory where you could say, let's draw that continuum between going down a little bit too easily and an outright dive. Trev, 
even Harry's admitted himself with a bit of a rueful smile that you know, could be construed as a dive, but there's more to it than that. Yeah, well, there's something that pro footballers don't like to talk about, and that is how that you know how to win pennies how to make the most of it <laughs> you know how it's diving's got such a negative stigma around it is actually winning a penalty or you know winning a foul because you're leading a player into it and you're still you know protecting yourself and harry to be fair the experienced guy and played in the type of position where you'd expect someone to be able to win fouls for him yeah. and, and you know win penalties for you but also you know there is there is the point that you know again and, and i say this to, it almost seems like we're getting too black and white um, in that, you know, it's either a dive or it's a penalty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either a yellow card to the attacker or a, a, a penalty and a red card to the defender. Mm-hmm. There can be a hell of a lot in between those two sort of things. You know, a player can take evasive action if, if he's on a direct sort of collision course and go to ground yeah. and it be neither a penalty nor a dive. You know, yeah. and I'm not saying that either of these fall, fell into that category, but I do think we almost, you know, we're pushing it to that point where if a, if a player goes down in a box and there's not a penalty, then the other players are actually saying, well, you've got to book him then. You've got to book him. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's like, well, for me, you know, a dive also is when, you know, when the player seeks that advantage, does he actually turn around and, and claim a penalty? You know, mm. do the other players claim a penalty? You know, it's like... I don't know. It's it's such a it's such a tough one, but I don't think it's as black and white as if a player goes down and it's not a penalty, then it's a yellow card for diving. It's but not. No. As, and it, and it seems to only be focused on the penalty box as well, isn't it? Because it happens all around the pitch. Absolutely. Players go down, and you don't get a free kick, and play just waves on, and no one really says anything. Yeah, about and there's that. a degree, you know, from the attackers' players. Yeah, some of those lads that are coming in. <laughs> You know, at right angles, are pretty big fellas mm. of self-preservation. Of well, do you know, what? it's not a foul, but I need to get out of the way of this guy. Yeah. You know, so I think uh, you know, I think Harry knew that he was probably there was certainly one of them that was uh, where he was sort of seeking to gain an advantage. But um, but the last thing I want is to you know we, we talk in the Premier League as well as this waving of imaginary cards and putting pressure on referees to book and send people off. I just think it's uh, we don't want to go down that route. Um, Sticking with Harry, um, he said that he felt that um, that Jim McGilton was right to uh, to give the whole squad a bit of a, a G up in response to the uh, to the Perth game. Hmm. Um, Trev, where do you stand on that? We've seen Kenny Dalglish do exactly the same in the Premier League after Liverpool's poor showing at Bolton. Um, you know, with pulled no punches, didn't single anyone out. Said that he was disappointed with some of his players that didn't seem to have the right mentality, attitude. Um, how do you feel? How, you know, if if your manager comes out and um, mm. uh, you know, if a West Ham manager comes out and has a go at the whole squad, yeah, I, I think sometimes it's you know, it's undeniable, and, and the players are going to be aware that they didn't do everything that they could have. But you do need to sort of, you know, manage it well and ensure that you've got a set of players that are going to respond to that approach because it's not true. You know, of all players, some players might think, "Well, this guy's only just come in, and he, you know, he's already, already having a go at, you know, how how we're playing." And as we we're saying earlier, this is not going to be an overhaul of players in the victory team. So this is the unit that he's going to end up working with. Um, so yeah, he, he needs to make sure that he's he's managed that right in terms of of what this group of players would want. But I don't, you know, particularly say. I mean, what can you say when you get smashed four one by Perth? I mean, you didn't, yeah. perf- you didn't, they didn't perform well. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's a yeah. fact. Yeah. All right, uh, we, we mentioned this briefly. Uh, Mark Milligan, uh, 
with current Tokaru, I suppose. You can still say yeah, he's there or there back. So, has joined Melbourne till the end of the season. Um, didn't, uh, didn't ingratiate himself with the Sydney FC faithful by uh, saying he's looking forward to playing in front of the, the most passionate fans in the A-League. It's not really the, best, the thing no. that they want to hear. Um, any word on whether he'd be cleared for tomorrow? I don't you know. know. It's subject to the international transfer certificate. I'm not sure how long that takes, but certainly that would be an interesting, uh, you know, with, uh, with the red cards and suspensions hanging around. Um, it'd be interesting to see, uh, if he started lining up against Sydney FC tomorrow. Exactly. And it'd be interesting to see where, where he plays. Um, some, some interesting comments on the forum saying that he, he's going to be a useful player because he's able to play it out from the back. So that might help that sort yeah. of link up to midfield and to get the ball to those attackers that, no doubt can do a job if they're given the chances. Um, yeah, you, you can't. I think it's a, a pretty strong signing, to be fair. And again, it'd be interesting to know where who drove this signing because I can't imagine that Mark Milligan is on Jim Magilton's radar. Always know. wanted him at Ipswich. Yeah, you know. So I, I mean, obviously, it, it, often it's a case of who's available. Yeah. Um, and you know who's been touted uh, as being available. So um, I suppose you suppose you go oh, look. This is a guy that was playing for the Socceroos ahead of going to the World Cup, and you know. Decent aid. It's only a loan move. Yeah, you know, you you would take him, wouldn't you? Okay. Um, Trent Sainsbury, Central Coast Mailers, has extended his deal, um, and three youth league players have also been promoted to the senior squad. Um, very Mariners, so, very Mariners story, isn't it? The sort of bringing through players like this. Yeah. So Mitchell Duke, uh, James Oates, and Anthony Caseras have been rewarded. I must admit, I was following the Mariners on Twitter over the weekend, and I saw that. Caceres had scored for the youth team and I, I thought it was the other Caceres <laughs> that had been to Melbourne and did he play at Wellington as well? Yeah, I think he did, I yeah. Like, oh, I wonder did what he? had happened to him but no, it's not. It's, mm. a, it's a different Caceres. But anyway, congratulations to those three boys. Um, Joel Griffiths uh, will have a new strike partner uh, in Nicholas Anelka at uh, Shanghai Shenhua. Um, he has signed uh, a one-year deal that will reportedly earn him close to a million bucks. If, if only um, they could sign Tevez, and then they might have the, <laughs> one of the more surly front threes in the world. The angriest <laughs> front three in the world. Uh, they um, also, I mean, there seems to be a hell of a lot of money kicking around in the Chinese leagues at the moment, because yeah. not only have they signed Anelka, but they're also trying to sign Didier Drogba and Michael Balak. I mean, they're, they're focusing at the, the older end of town, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Drogba said he's going nowhere until at least June. Um, but that would be a, that would be a front three, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, let's be honest. Um, from a purely selfish perspective, maybe this is something that can breathe a bit of life into the Asian Champions League from a fan perspective. You know. Yeah. Totally. All of a sudden, the Chinese side is coming to play Brisbane with. Didier Drogba, Nicholas and Elka lining up for them. You know, maybe that's what it takes to, to, to fire the imagination of the local public and the viewing public here. I mean, we've seen it so many times, you can't underestimate star power, can you? No. And, and how much of an interest it would be. Okay. Um, one other thing that we just wanted to talk about was, uh, was the W League semi-finals. Yep. Furore is the word. <laughs> um, Sydney... Very unhappy uh, with the manner of their uh, defeat to Brisbane Raw. Uh, Canberra, as expected, um, got over Melbourne victory. Uh, narrow win in the end, but um, but yeah, deservedly so. Canberra been the best team this year. Uh, are into the final and hosted the final this weekend. However, the end to uh, Sydney FC's game was full of controversy, where uh, apparently. Um, 
the Brisbane Raw players twice refused to put the ball out as Kylie Ledbrook was uh, was injured trying to get attention and was eventually substituted the second time. They didn't put the ball out. It was in the last minute. Went down the other end and scored. Uh, took it to extra time. Uh, Kai Simon got sent off. Um, Alan Stadich got sent off as well. Uh, and then had to be locked in the change because he was he was still within shouting distance of the pitch and the bench and uh, so yeah he's been very vocal um, there's been a few of the Sydney players on social media that have been quite vocal yeah I mean you um, would feel vexed especially in the final series that's, that's the end of your season that's what you've been yeah. building towards and you, you go out of it in a situation like that yeah, I mean it's it's such a tough one because if they didn't, you know, apparently it was it was nothing more serious than cramp, you know. Right. So I guess the question is, is that is cramp a legitimate injury to put the ball out, or is that just you know what you're supposed to be able to play for ninety minutes? Yeah, and and if they hadn't scored, you know, if they had put the ball out and hadn't scored, would we be hearing from the Brisbane coach saying they've got bad morals for pretending to be injured at the end of the game well, to see yeah. it out? Yeah. Yeah, so Stanich said we were deceived, really, by Brisbane Raw. Uh, for me, it's an immoral and an unethical act of the highest order in football. Uh, quite <laughs> I can clear, think of some worse. <laughs> quite clearly furious, Stanich told us. Um, so there we go. So uh, I'm sure that will roll on and on. But one thing that isn't in doubt is the fact that Brisbane triumphed in the penalty shootout and will face Canberra in this week's W League final on Saturday afternoon, which is live on ABC. The semi-finals weren't, they were uh, delayed highlights, but gl- great to hear that the showpiece game will be on live. Excellent. Trev, thoughts on that? And Brisbane going for a, for a third title? Well, I've already tipped Brisbane, haven't I? And you've already tipped Canberra. Yeah, so I'm I feel it, ca- it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be sporting for me to, to back down. Okay. Brisbane. All right, that is it for part two. We will be back uh, in part three to interview our special guests, uh, Charlie Cook and Jason Lancer from Curva Coaching. Have a chat with them about what they're up to, but then we'll, uh, we'll involve them in that Premier League uh, wrap-up and uh, preview of this weekend's action and the FA Cup to come. Before instantly stop snoring. After instantly stop snoring. Before instantly stop snoring. After instantly stop snoring. Snoring is generally caused by incorrect tongue placement. Instantly Stop Snoring provides a simple mouth guard designed to hold the lower jaw stable, forward and clear of the airways. Here's the number you've been searching for. 1-800-991-259. That's 1-800-991-259 for Instantly Stop Snoring. Back to 442 Insider. Hello, welcome back to the second half of this week's 442 Insider Podcast. As promised, we are joined by football royalty. Rare that we have someone <laughs> genuinely <laughs> with some credentials in football. Normally, it's just us two Muppets. <laughs> but we have football royalty here. Charlie Cook, former Chelsea player. Let me just read something. This is, uh, this is from the Chelsea website, from the, their legends section. Uh, Charlie Cook was one of the most skillful and best-loved footballers ever to play for Chelsea. Uh, signed from Dundee in 1966, Cookie made his debut in a Fairs Cup semi-final against Barcelona, um, in which he easily and then in wait till August to made his debut, where he embarrassed England's World Cup winning centre half Bobby Moore, wow. scoring the winner against Trev's West Ham. Not sure that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that there's a little bit of blue tinge spectacles on that, Charlie. With that, that's it. But welcome, welcome to Australia. Thank you. Yeah. Delighted to be here. Brilliant. So for the people that um, 
you know, some of our, our younger readers and, and listeners especially uh, probably wouldn't know uh, Charlie. Uh, played for Aberdeen, Dundee, Chelsea in two stints. Voted in Chelsea's team of the century, it was. Not bad. And then led the charge over to the to the States. So, and you still live in the States today, is that right? I live in the States, yeah, up in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, been there for about the uh, best part of 30 years, so yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was doing a bit of uh, research. You, you play with George Best? At, yeah, I played with the... Georgie in the NASL. Uh, and in fact, it was a bit of league, I think, that a lot of people give it credit for now. Uh, but it's sort of, of getting members. a bit of a resurgence now. People are looking back. I think because the MLS is starting to get some traction, sure. people are looking back at the players that did go and play there. And yep. Cruyff played there, and Pele, obviously, and well, Bobby Moore played there. Pele, Beckenbauer, Cruyff, yeah. Niskins, all these guys were there. Now, I think the, the one problem we had was that Warner Brothers were funding uh, the Cosmos, and there were some great crowds. We played in front of 78,000 in Giant Stadium. I think I can remember 52,000 indoors at Seattle in the Kingdom. They've torn that down now, of course. And uh, up, up there in Minnesota, when Joe Mosono was playing up front for Minnesota, Minnesota, mind you, it's kind of the backwoods. Uh, they were getting 32,000 average home attendance. Having said that, we were playing in L.A., George Best and the team, uh, Wolfgang Sunholz, ex-Bayern uh, Munich. Uh, we were getting in the Coliseum. 100,000-seater stadium, we're getting 5,000 people. So there was that kind of imbalance in the whole thing. And Warner Brothers, I think, get fed up funding all the big players, big-name players. One of the things, we did a feature recently on the... on the old uh, NASL, and, and there, I couldn't believe looking at the pictures of them playing on the baseball diamonds. Yeah, on some exactly, of the yeah, I can remember doing that down there in uh, San Diego. God, blimey, you can, many a time, many a time, up in Chicago as well. So it was a strange experience, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, comparing that, obviously playing with somebody like George Best and having that, and being a winger yourself, um, somebody like Lionel Messi, these days, I mean, obviously the you know the games change, the pitches for one, the protection that they get from the from the referees. I'd imagine that you you know playing alongside people like Chocolate Harris in your day. You know, <laughs> I mean, how, how how do you compare the the two? I mean, do you look at Messi now and say he would he would have been a success in any generation? Oh, no question, no question. Probably uh, maybe even a bigger success back in our day, simply because he is such a brave little guy and uh, he, he does all these things with so, so much close attention. Uh, I think uh, one big difference I see in the game today is the actual state of the fields. Uh, I, I understand that Barcelona training fields are exactly the same uh, condition as they're playing on the fields uh, in big games. And I can remember playing in some fields that were like mud heaps, you know. Yeah. So uh, it makes a difference to the game. Uh, but I think it's a aesthetically a much more pleasing game today and much nicer passing, probably throughout the whole all the leagues just simply because of uh, TV exposure and teams playing a better brand of soccer. Yeah. And uh, let's talk, you know, about Chelsea. I mean, have you still got ties to the club? Are you still close? You know, do they, do they embrace you as a... As a they do now. Uh, they didn't. Uh, prior to Abramovich taking over, uh, I think uh, Ken Bates, when he ran, ran the club, I don't think they had a lot of money and uh, they weren't too much interested in their history or their legacy or whatever. Uh, but I think Abramovich and his advisors, I think, they made a smart move and they figured that uh, if they're going to compete with the Man U's and the Liverpool's and all the rest of it with their legacy and so on, uh, they had to do something about their history. And they've done a very nice job of it, I think. They've done they spruced up the, the stadium itself. Uh, obviously, they've got fantastic training facilities. But on top of that, they've invited all the old players back. 
for many events, many you know, player of the year events and so on and so forth. So there's always two or three occasions a year when we'll get invited back to particular occasions, which Excellent. is nice, which That's didn't good. happen before before he came. It's interesting you say that, because um, the, the, the ex-Man City player, Paul Lake, said the same thing about the Qataris taking over Man City, yep. uh, that they brought him back in a community role, and he said that you know, like they get a lot of stick because oh, it's just money and they're buying up, but, but it took them coming in to reconnect sort of Manchester City with yep. the community and bringing ex-players that... That have been sort of like just forgotten about under the the previous regime, sure. probably because they don't have the money to do it. You know? And no, no suggestion we're all forgotten, but I mean people were still great to us when we <laughs> went back during that time. But it's certainly been different since uh, the new takeover. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about what you've done since you playing career. You're probably better known now, certainly by our readers, as being sort of you know partner, business partner of Alf Galustian in Curva Coaching Worldwide and. Jason, who's joining us as well, runs the Australian operation, and we work very closely with you guys. Talk, talk to us about how that came about, how you made that transition from player to, to setting up Curve. Well, we always wanted to stay in a game. Uh, I was in the States at the time. We were staying in the States. I would uh, married an American uh, girl, and uh, I knew I was going to be staying in the States. And at that time, the business, uh, if you're going to stay in the business uh, of soccer, it was partly to do with uh, soccer camps. Now, just remember that we'd come out of that whole decade of terribly negative professional soccer. Uh, Will Corver had come out of that too. And we'd all been kind of, you know, cheesed off by the way soccer was coached and then the kind of game we were seeing on TV and so on at that time. And just at that time, we, we came across Will Corver. Uh, he was doing technical training. And, you know, there's people today who'll say, oh, yeah, we used to do that. I'm telling you. We, we looked around and looked around and there was nobody doing anything different, if you want to call it that. He was doing technical training, and he was the first guy we ever came across. And, and I would kind of defy anybody to say otherwise. He was the only coach in the world who was actually teaching the skills of the great players. Nobody knew how to. People used to say, well, you're born with it. People would watch me play, they'd see George Best and say, well, they're gifted, they're lucky, it's what you've got, and uh, whatever he does on the field, it's effective. But they couldn't tell you exactly what they did. One of the things we're most proud of today after the program's been in existence for I think almost 28, 29 years now, is that uh, we have young kids in our program, uh, say 12, 11, 12 year old kid could be watching a game and not like say that the, the soccer pundits on the, the TV will say well, so and so did a trick and got himself some room to cross a ball and they crossed and scored a goal. I say fine, that's one way of looking at it. But our young kids nowadays, we, we would call it education, uh, they could say he did a Cruyff turn, he didn't do an inside of the foot, cut off, and, and so on and so forth. He'll describe the action that happened uh, and wh what we would call a much more educated uh, bit of information than you get from, say, the pundits, partly because I understand they're not particularly interested in, in that, and we are very much interested in the technical uh, side of the game. Yeah, I mean, coaching the under-10s, under-11 age group myself, I had to I had to redefine the Cruyff turn because I said that who remembers Johan Cruyff? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, who's that? Go home and ask your dad. Something else, then, Dad. We're slowly reaching that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, talk us through the landscape in the states because the US is uh, is a market that we often look to in the magazine and, and editorially here as you know it is the is the lessons that we can learn there as, mm -hmm. as a developing football nation in a, in a market where you've got dominant sort of, you know, 
indigenous sports like the NFL and baseball and where football's place sits and very similar to Australia so there's huge participation at grassroots but that hasn't always fed through to the professional game I mean what, what's the landscape there like at the moment? I think it's very healthy. Uh, it used to be looked upon as a white middle class sport, the kind of thing. I don't think it, it's that any longer. Uh, the numbers of kids playing, number of people playing the, the sport in the States, I often I say to people from the rest of the world, the rest of the world is asleep at the wheel uh, to, if they don't think there's a lot of things happening in the States. I think the big difference now is there seems to be a genuine connection between uh, youth play and the college sports where all the kids want to get to. That's, that's a stepping stone to MLS. Uh, and now, uh, say the NSCA convention, national convention, the annual convention, uh, they're making a real good job of the the draft process uh, for for football, for soccer. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and the draft for the NFL or the uh, and basketball it's is huge. huge. Yeah. It's a huge event throughout the whole country. And now they're getting it on TV. It's on Fox Soccer. And uh, they're doing a very, very good job of promoting that whole side of the game. So the, the connection between youth soccer, college soccer, and then the MLS is very clear. There's a clear pathway now, uh, and so I think it's very healthy. And top of that, I think uh, the league itself is a much healthier specimen than when, when I was there, what, 30-odd years ago, simply because uh, I can remember people saying in the old NESL, if the top people go like Warner Brothers who are running Cosmos, if they pull out the whole thing will fall flat and you think, well I don't really think that's going to happen, well it did happen you know. Yeah. I think they get fed up funding all this of, uh, the salaries of many many players around them you know, the people at Canaglia and uh, the, the Pelé and so on so that all kind of collapsed very quickly, I think nowadays uh, in the MLS there's a lots of uh, it's a different uh, uh, legal vehicle, so uh, they're getting income from uh, uh, transfer fees across the, uh, you know, the guys like Cahill. I don't know if there was a lot of money made at that point yeah. by the league. Uh, not Cahill, sorry, Donovan. I, was, I was talking about you. Yeah, but um, a lot of these guys, uh, when they're getting transfers, there's money going to the league. Not on top of that, in our days, in the old days, they used to make money from TV revenue, if you want to call it revenue. They would buy TV time and then try and sell it to the local uh, businesses. And that's the way they tried to make money. I don't think they were very successful. Yeah. I think nowadays they're on ABC, Fox Soccer, every day of the week almost. And so there's certainly lots of uh, that kind of TV revenue coming into the, into the league. So it's a much healthier beast than it was many yeah. years ago. And as with Curve have been active in that sort of grassroots side of it, I mean, how... how it's one of the challenges that we always talk about here, and if you speak to anyone, it's like, right, how can we convert grassroots participation into support of the A-League? And the MLS seem to be doing that quite well. Um, you know, you look at you know, Portland Timbers and Seattle, the crowds that they're getting as, as you know, first and second year teams. How, how active are the MLS teams in the community? Do they reach down into these kids that, that you're working with? I think that's been a, a feature of all the sports throughout all the years I've been in the States. I think the clubs, even in the NASL days, did a, they tried very, very hard. They were doing a lot of things uh, that I'd never experienced in, in Britain. That, see, you've got a captive audience in Britain, whereas over in the US it was a brand new sport. But I think what they're getting now is they've got parents with younger kids coming into the game and they've experienced the sport either at college or at youth level. And so it's, it's a different kind of uh, parent that's bringing the kids these days and the enthusiasm's pretty, uh, it's pretty mind-boggling uh, the way these clubs have suddenly got a huge fan base. Yeah. 
And talk to us about Curva, how, how, your growth in the US, what, what's the size of, of the operation? Well, we've, we've got about, say, 26, 20, 24, 26 licensees that are covering about uh, 34, 34 states. Um, and it's a pretty healthy so, business, I think, uh, we, we would call it. One of the things that we're noticing is happening, you're always looking for people to give you testimonials of how good your program is, etc., etc. We never buy that, but people are very happy to give us, uh, say, nice words about Carver Coaching. But one of the best, most important ones I think we get nowadays is that we have coaches who used to coach, say, five, ten years ago when they were college players. They'd come into our program, they'd coach in our camps. And now they've gone on to, say, other jobs, real-life jobs, and uh, they're having children, four, five, six-year-old, and they're bringing their children back to the program. Yeah. I think that says uh, mountains for uh, what we've been doing and uh, their respect for the program. And have you found, I mean, Jason talked about this previously, that, that the, when we talked earlier about Messi and players like that, that there is this emphasis now coming through football in, into a more technical, skillful game. Uh, it's less about sort of athleticism now, and it's more about you know small guys that are good on the ball. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's then going to p- play into right into the area of player that you're developing. No question. I, I was just saying that uh, I remember a season ago or so, uh, I'd been at uh, Chelsea to do some presentation at halftime, and I had to stand in the in the uh, tunnel waiting and to go out, and the teams are coming off. And, uh, well, they all had cleats on, they all had shoes on, and, you know, with studs and so on. Nevertheless, a lot of these guys were six foot plus, you know, a lot of big guys. And I thought, God, the game has certainly changed a bit. Uh, maybe I was sitting standing on flat shoes and <laughs> so it was accentuated. But it seemed to me a different animal that was playing the game than uh, I could remember. So we're delighted that, that Messi's drawn so much attention. Is it his third time now, the Ballon d'Or? Yeah, and uh, just a fantastic performance from him. Then you see the Iniestas and all the rest of the players around him. They're not big physical specimens, but uh, it's great for us, great for cover coaching, great for youth development soccer. Yeah, and Jace, for, for Curver in Australia, do you look to the US as a, as a sort of model that, that can be followed here? I think so, Andy. I think with um, the way the program's expanded, in particularly Northern America, in so many states. But I, I guess for us, our, our, our focus has certainly been Asia. Um, but I think one lesson we've learnt out of the, uh, the US is the way their, their camp business, they run camps as... Best, better than anyone I've actually seen globally, particularly in curva coaching, uh, uh, where the countries we're in. And I think that the structure, and they've been doing it for so long, and they're so good at it. So that's one thing I think we can say we've taken out of the US, that, that, that model, the camp business. Um, but I guess we focus more on the academies and trying to work in at the grassroots and then working, creating pathways, in, as you know, uh, into clubs or federations. And I think that's more of an Asian model where we've taken the lead on that. Yeah, and obviously FFA here are working with with Alpha as a as a consultant and Curve as a consultant to the the skill acquisition programs here. That's exactly right. So Alfred comes in twice a year to work with Han Hanberger, the technical director for the FFA, and the idea of that program is to have former pro players or the best of the best coaches with the best of the best players and, and Sir Alfred and well and Charlie consult on the curriculum, present it to Han and then Alfred comes out and delivers a course twice a year. Um, and the next one being in March uh, this year, yeah. So um, it's something we we obviously look forward to, and it's put us in a, a nice place working with the federation, which is obviously important for us in Australia. Yeah. I mean, do you work at all with any of the clubs or the federation in the US at, mm. at that level? Uh, we, we don't in the US. Uh, I think our business has uh, developed. Uh, Jason mentioned some of the academy programs in uh, Japan and so on. 
uh, our guys, while the Saturday office summer camps, they've really developed the programs into year-round programs. Something I noticed here that would surprise me, in fact, was uh, you don't have any real indoor soccer. People don't uh, build uh, indoor-specific, you know, soccer-specific stadiums here, and you don't do a lot of, as I understand it, uh, winter indoor programs. Uh, in the States, because and certainly in the northern part of the country where the, the winters are pretty bad, there's an awful lot of it indoor, for example, in Cincinnati, not a big city. We've got about seven, eight uh, indoor soccer facilities, and they're pretty busy throughout the winter, so the kids will play their spring and uh, fall seasons, then suddenly they're into indoor soccer throughout the, the, the winter period, and then go back into spring outdoor soccer. And while that's happening, many of our guys... Uh, over and above uh, doing, say, summer camps, they're developing programs indoors for kids all the way from, say, four or five-year-old up through 16, 17 uh, college-age programs. Brilliant. Um, the other thing I was going to say, obviously, um, you guys have been working with Canberra. We talked about the W League earlier. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, I've tipped Canberra to win the W League final on, on Saturday. Great tip, Andy. Trev's tipped Brisbane. Obviously, another correlation between the, the, the two is, is the success of the, the women's game in, in the US mm-hmm. and, and the success of the and growth of the women's game here. I mean, we, we've got a W League here, but it's still you know, nowhere near at the level that the US players are. And I think it was quite interesting. We had Sarah Walsh in one of the Matildas uh, recently, you know, and she said, you know, the difference between the two is like, we've just got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, um, as did the US, but our centre forward goes back to work in Rebel Sport (laughs) five days a week, and they they go back to a full-time programme. I mean, is the women's game still, still growing there and still... Well, I think the great thing that in the States has probably surprised a lot of people around the world is the number of kids playing, the number of girls playing the game uh, before they even get to the Women's Soccer League. Uh, I think something like 40%, 45% of the participants. And I think there's something up, up there, about 20, 24 million people playing the game in the States. Uh, so there's an awful lot of girls playing the game. They actually, the Women's League itself has had its problems. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think as far as the quality of soccer being played, absolutely, it's uh, top-notch. Uh, very physical, very get after it, very tough, tough league. Uh, and I don't mean that in any sense of uh, demeaning their skill levels, but I think everybody saw in the World Cup final, uh, there was certainly, they were very impressed with a Japanese brand of play. They, they played a very technical brand of soccer and stayed with it, even when it was going perhaps against them. Yeah. And people were very, very, in the, in the States, were very, very impressed with that. So while they've been used to success, they're very aware of uh, people creeping up on them. And as a JFA partner. Yeah, 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 you'd be yeah, glad yeah. to watch it. Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, uh, those players have been coached well. Yeah. 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 Um, so, what was your impression of the. I know you did it. You went down and did a session with the Canberra girls, didn't you? Recently, oh, last well, week. Well, yeah. we just, uh, just a one off session. It was a yeah. lot of fun. I was surprised they're playing in a cricket field. They didn't have any goals to shoot in. So, they've been unbeaten all, all season, didn't have any goals to shoot. I couldn't believe it. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, but th- there you have it. But they were a great bunch of girls got after it from, you know, first time we were on the field, they got after it, no problem at all. Whatever work was put in front of them, got after it enthusiastically. Uh, very impressed with them. Lovely bunch of girls and had a fantastic season. We went to the game uh, Sunday, Saturday. Yeah. Um, I forget which day it was now. But uh, I was ever so impressed. I was almost kind of moved by the kind of 
the, the total commitment of the people that run the club and the women and the parents and the kids there, it really was quite impressive. I think they had a record crowd, 1,700. Yeah. They were overwhelmed by that. And uh, I think the people that run the club, it was very moving to see how totally committed they were. Excellent. And, uh, and how long are you here for? How long are you well, just here we're, we're going to Auckland the next couple of days and we're doing another uh, course there before we go back home. Yeah. And what, what's next for Cova, both of you? I mean, what, what's the sort of plan from here? I think for a just going on the W League, Andy, I think with the uh, definitely working, it was the first W League or A League club that we worked with, and I think maybe it was a lucky year, and 10 games undefeated, and hopefully we'll yeah. 11, 11 now, including the semi, and, and hadn't been beaten in, in, in pre season either, which is quite interesting. So whether it was a lucky year or not, I think we certainly have made a difference, like a Munoz or a Shepard. 60, 70 games for the national team, played World Cups, Olympic Games, and even they felt that the technical training made a difference. So I would suggest that this year we will continue to work with maybe more W League clubs. Yeah, and um, who, whose decision was that, Jase, to bring, to bring Curver in? Was that the coach? No, it was actually Heather Reid, the CEO right. of Capital Football, and also yeah. the CEO of Cap- Canberra United, and it was her decision. Um, she just felt that Michelle Heyman, for example, could do with a little bit more work, and Munoz and these national team players, and... I've heard recently, you know, the Sykes girls and, and Cooper and Ellie Brush at the back, maybe Tommy Samani's looking at them now because of their technical abilities improved. And that was yesterday in a, in a media release. So uh, full credit to Heather. Um, it could have gone either way, I guess, yeah, but it's worked yeah. quite well and, and, and hopefully we can build on that in the future. Excellent. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we are going to be back to just review uh, the happenings in the English Premier League. A few MLS boys uh, Coming back in the in the break to star, uh, we'll we'll chat through that and then we'll preview this weekend's FA Cup games with somebody who's actually won it, Charlie Cook. So we'll talk about uh, some FA Cup memories as well. This month's 442 magazine is out now and features an exclusive interview with Barcelona's Cesc Fabregas on why he left Arsenal. Plus, we ask if the NSL was better than the A-League. We uncover what happened to the North Queensland Fury players after the club folded, go behind the scenes at EPL New Boys QPR and chat with David Silva, Paul Scholes, Juan Mata, Marco Rojas, Mustiamini, Mazumo Madoka and Sasha Ognanovsky. The latest on the world game. This is 442 Insider. Hello, welcome back to the final part of this week's 442 Insider podcast. We are going to just round up the Premier League action. Big games were Sunday in the UK. Man United uh, 2-1 winners over Arsenal. And Man City uh, controversially 3-2 winners against the... Uh, Against Spurs, we've got a few Spurs fans in the office that were gutted. Balotelli. A, a few. <laughs> Balotelli uh, looks like he's going to get banned for four games for his stamp on uh, Scott, Scott Parker. Uh, but we're still on the pitch to score the penalty, win the penalty and score it. Uh, which means Man City are three points clear at the top of the Premier League. Um, Arsene Wenger also getting some stick from his own fans. For a substitution. So, for a seemingly poor substitution, wasn't it? For a substitution of a player that they gave him stick for buying. Yeah. They're now giving him stick for taking him off. Yeah. Football fans, eh? Yeah. <laughs> There's no logic to that, <laughs> is, is there? A lot of people are talking about that being a real turning point because regardless of how things have gone, the majority of Arsenal fans have stuck with Wenger and, and deservedly so after what he's done. But for, for them to boo a substitution um, is sort of a new watershed, I think. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool... Uh, very meek um, performance from them that's uh, raised the uh, hackles of uh, Dalgleish, who's come out and slammed the Liverpool team and players, uh, suggesting that they 
thought they could just go to Bolton and turn up and win. No, well, no. Couldn't have been further from the truth. They were a shambles, really, particularly at the back. You know, genuinely sloppy. And we're saying about how poor they've been at home and how many games they've drawn at home, seven at home this season. And they've, they've been slightly better on the road. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a, a Bolton team got themselves out of the relegation zone, and, and deservedly so. Uh, Everton, uh, Tim Cale scored his first goal for 12 months. Good to see uh, our Tim back on the score sheet. Uh, Landon Donovan from the US, uh, obviously there. And also Robbie Keane scored two goals for Villa. So, Charlie, the MLS boys, uh, Thierry Henry's come back and got on the score sheet. And I guess that's probably a, another positive sign for the strength of the MLS now, in that these players are coming straight from the MLS and not just playing in the Premier League, but starring in the Premier League. You know, Robbie Keane's won a game for Villa on his own. Is that is that a sign that the game really is? I don't that think a... that it's necessarily a sign. I think uh, Thierry Henry, uh, his goal, he just come on the field and he got, gets the first kick of the ball, he, he scores a goal. It was a nice goal, but then again, uh, he was into some controversy the second game he was in. So, I mean, I think the, the, the Premiership's a pretty gritty league and uh, they'll all be tested. So I think Robbie's had a great start. Terrific start from terrific for him. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see as you go into the season. They're going into that pretty difficult part of the season uh, where every point is going to count. And uh, I'll be interested to see how he sort of, uh, he performs through the rest of it. Yeah, and Beckham, obviously, uh, that was big news in the week, has, has re-signed with, that, with the Galaxy for two years. I mean, it, as someone that's been there through that, you know, is his time there been judged a success on the whole, would you say? I think it's been a huge success publicity-wise for yep. the, the league. It's been great to the league in that respect. Uh, I think people were doubting him, say, a year and a half ago, uh, but I think his performances this past year have been super. Uh, I think uh, the coaching staff have done a good job with the team itself. There's a lot of guys in that team that I really hadn't heard much of, um, but they've put together a damn good team, very effective team. And uh, I think the interest from so many clubs in Europe to re-sign or to sign Beckham back to be back over there for at least a couple of months uh, is a sign that he's been doing very well. So uh, I've got great respect from. Uh, I didn't uh, think he'd do particularly well in the States, but I think he's certainly surprised me. Didn't and seem, well. seems to have settled. It seems like that decision was driven by how happy he was living in LA and in the US, and his kids seemed to be happy there. And he, he, there was more money on offer to move to Paris, and the cynical people I'm sure everywhere would have said he's going to go to Paris you know like Milan Paris you know LA London but he's he's made a decision to stay will that win some of the the, the remaining doubters over that he's he's spurned a higher offer now to stay in America and, and well, I think definitely there was definitely a feeling there that uh, he was kind of letting some people down simply by going back even if it was a loan transfer yeah when he went to Milan there was when he came, then came back there was a bit of negativity it, it seemed to kind of undermine the legitimacy of the league the league itself had, uh, had become a legitimate force in world soccer at least they would certainly hope, believe so and I think the fact that he would want to go back there for a couple of months or uh, perhaps leave and not be sure if he was coming back I think a lot of few people felt let down about that so uh, I think the fact that there's been so much interest in him by European clubs, uh, I think it's raised his his profile again. Yeah. And the fact that he's gone back to LA and uh, committed to them has been great news for all the M- MLS fans. Excellent. Um, your old boys, Chelsea, nil-nil, uh, Norwich. That was Norwich's first clean sheet of the season, which tells its own story there. Um, Fernando Torres. Let's talk about strikers and confidence and, you know... He doesn't become a bad player overnight, but that's how it would have 
it would appear, I mean, as a, as a former player yourself, I mean, do you, do you feel for players going through these sorts of No periods? question. No question. A very difficult time for him, I'm sure. Uh, he's not the guy that put the price tag on his head. Uh, you could argue till the, you know, forever about what value every player is. Uh, I myself didn't think he was a, what was it, $50 million to put million. on his uh, yeah. head. I didn't think at the time, even with all the inflated prices, that he was that kind of value. But that's the price that was put on his head. I still don't think he was doing a job that, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, up front. Drogba? Yeah, I don't yeah. think he's doing, uh, is doing a job yet that Drogba can still do. Yeah. And so there's so many doubts about what Drogba's going to be doing, but uh, I think he's a guy they should be keeping. And if everybody was to be moving on, perhaps, perhaps Torres, it would be good for his career and, and uh, Chelsea. And obviously much has been made of, uh, of Villas-Boas as a, as a young coach. Um, you know, how would you, as a as a seasoned pro, you know, if you're John Terry and Frank Lampard, and you've been there for for a decade, and club, and a guy comes in who's younger than you, and he's calling the shots, you know, how, how does that go? What's the dynamic there? <laughs> like you say, it's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> I think the one thing I'd be pretty sure of is that he's going to need their support. I think they're pretty powerful personalities within the club, and if he's going to succeed, he's going to need need these guys on his side. Or else maybe gone. There's been talk of, you know, some talk mm. of either of them leaving. That's possible. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that they're troublemakers, but I think if he's going to succeed, he's going to need some guys like that, most of the guys like that, on his side. Mm. But also, I think at some point, you know, Chelsea have got to realise that they've got a plan for life without John Terry, Didier Drogba, Frank Lampard, and, and they're going to have to go through that period at some point. And it, if it's not now, it's going to be in the next 18 months. So, so a coach has got to oversee that and I guess you know did they just say well we believe Villas Boas is the guy let's give him three or four seasons because there's already been talk about you know will he see out the season you know and I just think it's, it's almost hiding the issue that, that this has got to be addressed and like you say it's probably going to be better done with the support of these guys yeah. but they can't carry Chelsea for another three or four seasons well I, I, I think uh, recent history proves that uh, Abramovich is not going to sit around and wait for things to happen. Uh, there's already been talk of Hiddink going back and, and all the rest of it. Uh, I'd be surprised if they don't do very well this season that he would still be here at the end of the season. Right. I mean, it's that much of a merry-go-round there. Uh, I would bet that uh, either Fra- Frank Lampard or... Uh, uh, Terry or... Terry, Topper. I think... Yeah. That, uh, he, I would think both of them will still be there at the end of the season. Yeah. And... Uh, it would be interesting. I think they're going to do pretty well if AVB is still going to be there. Okay. Uh, QPR got their first win, uh, apparently win under Mark Hughes, uh, 3-1 win against Wigan. Uh, West Brom, big win at Stoke. Uh, Martin O'Neill continues to work his magic um, against Sunderland, against the Swansea team that took all the plaudits the week before against uh, against Arsenal and saving the best to last, my boys Villa, thanks to Robbie Keane. 3-2 win at Wolves, which, uh, as I said, the top four remains unchanged. Man City, Man United, Spurs and Chelsea. Arsenal in fifth, Newcastle in sixth. Uh, the bottom three, Blackburn, Wolves and Wigan, although it's still all very tight there with uh, with only 12 points separating the, the, the whole bottom half of the league. Um, so, you know, it, if you look at a team like Sunderland and Villa that are at that midway point, they're significantly closer to being relegated than they are to, uh, to winning it, which is... Uh, which means it's all going to be very tight. So, so it's a break from Premier League action this weekend, though, as we uh, look at the FA Cup. Charlie, as, a, as an ex-winner, 
Um, what does the FA Cup mean to you? Uh, uh, mud and bullets and heavy fields <laughs> and uh, playing against some of the, the, the less fancy teams that are really outgunning for all the big big fish. And so that's the kind of memories I have of some gritty games. Uh, but certainly when you get to the finals, a lot of exciting stuff too. Yeah, and what about that final? What was your memories of, of playing in an FA Cup final? And well, to, get- t- to tell you the truth, uh, uh, the very first game when we played at Wembley, the, the pitch was a mud heap, uh, which was unbelievable for Wembley. It used to be sort of famed for being such a beautiful surface, but they had, had the... Uh, Horse of the Year show on the week before. Poured. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> well, it had it. The Horse yeah. of the Year show was at Wembley. And for the whole week, it poured. And I remember going out before the game. We are just walking out. with the teams walking out. And we were looking at the field. And uh, the, the, the water was coming up, bubbling up over the sides of our shoes. And so it was that heavy field. Lee should have stuffed us that, that game. We drew 2-2. Two, two. We came back twice and sort of, uh, got a tie. And I remember going back to the hotel after that game and... I was always in pretty good condition, but I remember puking up, uh, you know, in the sink as soon as I got to the hotel room. Didn't have any beer, didn't have any drink. I just, uh, just pure fatigue. And uh, I can remember that feeling after that game, but also the relief that we got the tie. So it was uh, the first replay in uh, FA Cup history. Three weeks later, Old Trafford, the field was totally different. It was a, a little bit bare in the middle, uh, but a little bit bumpy, but certainly much harder than uh, it had been at Wembley. They started well, got in front, but um, we were a gritty team then, and some people have looked at the film since. I've not seen the film in many years, and but they showed some clips of it, and you see some of the tackles in that game, you bloody hell, you know. <laughs> I thought, I, you know, you sit there, and you went, I played in that, you know, <laughs> kind of interesting stuff. But I remember Eddie McCready, Eddie, we used to sort of laugh at Eddie because uh, we used to say he was blind when he played under the lights because they always had a, a, a what do you call it, the glasses, glasses the top, the, the, yeah. contact lenses, yeah. and he used to have tough. Yeah, that was the excuse he couldn't see under the lights. But there was one tackle he makes, makes an edge of our box. Billy Bremner's going to head the ball, and suddenly Eddie's kicking it off his head. And it was one of these kind of things that automatic yellow card, automatic red card, perhaps uh, today. But uh, we, they got away with these things, and I think that was happening all over the field. There was a lot of, sort of heavy tackles and a lot of stuff. The, all the stuff about Leeds and Chelsea not liking each other was pretty true, you know. There was a lot of feeling about the game then, and about these two teams. And uh, the fact that we got it, uh, I made a goal for Aussie. It was a lo- one of these lovely goals where I got the ball in midfield. And you know that way when uh, games get away from me, they were one up. You thought, Christ, they were a hell of a team possession-wise, Leeds at that time, probably the best in the world. And if they got a grip of a game, you were sort of dead in the water. So... I'd, it was an hour into the game with our goal down. I'm thinking, Christ, we've got to start doing something. And so I get the game ball just over the midfield. And normally you'd maybe push it wide and let's build it up and get it in there. And I thought, well, I saw it. Peter Osgood, left-hand side of the box, just beyond big Jack Charlton. And I thought, if I can just get it in there and float it in and just one of these kind of floating kind of crosses. And if Ozzy gets it, maybe we get a chance. Well, you do that I I don't know, a thousand times in your career, and you maybe get one or two in all these thousand times. So I, I chipped it, I hit it, and I thought, Christ, that's got a chance. You know, I could see it just going, and big Jack was kind of stretching, and I was kind of half expecting Jack to get it, but he just he kind of stretched, and he just couldn't get to it. And Ozzy was just floating in behind him. And it's one of these kind of balls where you just put a little bit of bend on it, and you think, if it just floats, Ozzy will get that. And shoes the guns a pistol. He got there, and Ozzy. He was always one to make the most of any chances, you know. And he just launched himself, you know, horizontally, hit the ball, went past David Harvey in goal, and then he just stood up and he punched the air and 
course, uh, Old Trafford is much nearer Leeds than London. Yeah. But I'm telling you, you would have thought the whole of London was there that night. The whole place exploded in blue. And what a night we had after that. I mean, we eventually won it with a goal in overtime. Uh, David Webb from one of Ian Hutchinson's long throws. Again, Big Jack went up with it, with, I think with Aussie. It touched Jack's head, just went on, and David Webb got it at the far post. But it was one of these sort of crazy nights that I think all the guys that played in it will never forget. Brilliant. What about that? Maybe we get that sort of insight here. You're not a Leeds supporter, are you? No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> Villa and West Ham, so you're all right. You're all right. Uh, I mean, the other thing as well in those days that uh, we take for granted now is not just the pitch, but the balls. Mm-hmm. You know, being still active in football now, you must see the balls that they play with that don't hold any water, light as you like, just constantly the same. And in those days, heavy pitch, heavy ball, you know. Players. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not saying it was a, a ton weight, but it was definitely a heavier thing. Plus, the, the, the shoes today, the cleats, the boots, we used to call them, of course, they call them shoes in the States. Yeah. Do you call them shoes here? Just boots. Boots. Yeah, boots. boots. You yeah. still call it boots. Well, yeah. we call them shoes instead. Right. You know, uh, and all the colours and the lightness of them, all that has certainly changed. I think it's great. I mean, it's good for the game, great for the fans, and good for the players. I think uh, many of the players are much more willing to shoot from, from distance now. And the fact that they can get something on the ball, I think it's fantastic entertainment. Swings and roundabouts, though. The ball was heavier, but... But you could pretty much do what you like to the keepers in those days. Cause, you know, <laughs> yeah. They weren't quite a protected yeah. species, they are now. Uh, well, Chelsea, uh, massive game. Uh, you know this from your time, Charlie. QPR Chelsea. Yeah. You know, sort of southwest London derby. Obviously, the additional sort of spice, if you like, with the John Terry situation still ongoing, which came from this game in, in the league. Um, it's an early kickoff, so uh, Australian viewers will be able to watch this. Uh, it'll be 11 o'clock on Saturday night, so a few beers. Watch. Uh, so, I mean, you know, was that was that a big derby in your day as well? That was, that was huge. Always huge in our day. Uh, I think we had a couple of cup games against them too. But uh, being so close geographically, uh, I mean, it was always gritted. I mean, even when they came to Stamford Bridge, it was, you could never assume anything about these games. They were definitely local derbies, and a lot of people, you know. Really up for it. Uh, lots of beer, lots of lots yeah. of fun. And ex ex Chelsea uh, player uh, Mark Hughes now in charge of QPR. So there's uh, there's some spice in that one. Uh, Liverpool Man United always uh, a, a great fixture. Um, they will meet uh, Arsenal versus Villa. My boys travel to Arsenal on Sunday. Uh, Watford versus Spurs, uh, Everton versus Fulham. So not, I don't think Schwartz is fit yet. Trevor just D. off, I think. Just yeah, he's off. Just off yeah, so we won't get to see uh, Tim Cale face off against Mark Schwartzer. Um, other ties: Blackpool versus Sheffield Wednesday, Bolton versus Swansea, Derby versus Stoke, Hull versus Crawley Town, uh, Leicester versus Swindon, Millwall versus Southampton, Sheffield United versus Birmingham, Stevenage versus Notts County, West Brom v Norwich, and Brighton v Newcastle, and a local derby, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, rounds it off. Um, Charlie, I mean, just on the FA Cup, I mean, much has been made about the fact that as the FA Cup lost its sort of, you know, its shine because of the Champions League so dominant now, but we both now live in countries where there's nothing like the FA Cup, you know, where. Uh, an amateur team can end up being drawn against the best team in the land, you know. And do you, do you ever think that 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 you can't replicate that history and the size, the sheer size of that tournament? I don't think so. I think there's definitely a, a couple of years, a few years, maybe just five, six years back, 
when it lost, lost, seemed to lose its shine. I think the Champions League had come on a ton, and people were overwhelmed by the Champions League. And if you go to a Champions League game, I think you'll, you'll agree, it's a fantastic occasion. The place is decked out, and the place is jammed with uh, celebrities and so on and so forth. So it was, it's a big occasion, no question, Champions League games. But uh, I think it's made a comeback. FA Cup's made a comeback in recent years, certainly in my imagination. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, the idea that you could, it could ever lose its shine is hard to believe for me. Is it still big, is it still big in the States? Uh, people follow it? I think so. Uh, I think the premiership, anything to do with the premiership, is huge now in the States. And yeah. uh, uh, we can watch it almost uh, any night of the week. Yeah, so it's uh, huge. Uh, Sometimes it's not so good when they say they put on a third division team against a, a fourth division team, perhaps because it's FA Cup. But when you get to big big names, no question, still got its magic. Fantastic. So, Chase, who's your team? Who do you follow? Oh, look, for, I think for me, Andy, I mean, I like, at the moment, I love watching Gareth Bale play. Yeah. For example, yeah. yeah. So, I, I'm, you know, Arsenal, I think, technically very good. So, I'm more that, that, that way in mind. So, they're the kind of teams that I would be following, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, what, what price is Chelsea for the Champions League? There's, there's I don't know. Well, they're still in it. I mean, that, that's the thing. You know, the, the, the Chelsea and Arsenal, the side that you know, like you'd argue that they're two of the big guns that might struggle to, to even qualify for next year's Champions League, are the two that are still in it. Yeah. yeah so uh, yeah, never back against the English teams over two legs. You know, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what price they are. I'd imagine they'd be, be quite a reasonable large. price. I'd think. Yeah, with, yeah. You know, I think Barcelona are so short. That everyone else is like yeah. you know yeah. way out yeah alright that's it for this week thank you so much Charlie thanks for coming in taking time out of your schedule here it's been an absolute pleasure to get uh, insight from that on the FA Cup and uh, what's happening in the US Jason thanks for joining pleasure, us pleasure Andy and uh, we'll be back next week thanks a lot for joining us 442 Insider is a Helms Media Solutions production visit helms.com.au to find out more about our services